Jesus' name, amen. As we've noted in our last two studies in Philippians chapter 3, because joy manifests through a working of God's Spirit in your heart, yielded by grace afforded to you in Jesus, it's then only logical that the greatest deterrent of that joy would be anything that either directly or indirectly undercuts the power of grace or your dependency on the Holy Spirit. As famed evangelist Billy Sunday once said, if you have no joy, there's a leak in your Christianity. This is why after the opening admonition to rejoice in the Lord, the Apostle Paul immediately warns believers to be aware of Christian legalism, as well as though that preach or peddle such things. Friend, always know that if you hear grace, comma, and do these things, or grace, but don't do these things, you're being sold a substitute gospel, not the real gospel, something completely contrary to the good news of grace and grace alone. Now, as we seek to get a running start into this morning's text, Let's begin with Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Paul writes, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. If there could have ever been a man who dared stand before God on the basis of his own righteousness, in his former life under the law, the Apostle Paul would have been the prime candidate. And yet, in this appeal to reject legalism, Paul is letting us know that he had come to see his former identity based in his works, his goodness, his merit, his ability to obey the law as not only being worthless, but Paul calls it total rubbish in comparison to this incredible position he found in Jesus. Paul is clear that he'd counted all of these things lost the very moment he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Verse 7, it's in the past tense. These I have counted loss. But this accounting, keep in mind, it's something that Paul was continually doing. Verse 8, he adds, yet indeed I also count all things lost. I have counted loss, but I also count loss right now. You see, from Paul's perspective, he simply couldn't understand the appeal of legalism in light of God's grace. I mean, who cares, Paul would argue, what I do in context to what Jesus has done? Who cares about the sacrifices that I make when the shadow of Jesus' sacrifice is so encompassing? Who cares about my ability when you take time to consider Jesus' sufficiency? Why should we care at all about self when the only important thing in this life is knowing Jesus? Now, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but and I know that means a tangent is coming, but the idea Paul is discussing is of such importance. It does necessitate, I take a little while here, 
and expound upon the idea of knowing Jesus and how this connects to the critical nature of our faith in Jesus, why that's so pivotal. The Bible says faith, or what we'll define as one's total confidence, and the power of God's grace as demonstrated through Jesus' death on the cross, not works based in the law, grace is the only mechanism the Bible tells us by which a person is justified before God. This is what Paul means when he says to the Philippians that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, <clears throat> the righteousness which is from God by faith. While many of us might understand this truth on at least a conceptual, an intellectual level, most of us, if we're being honest this morning, struggle with the practicalities of how all these things work, which is important for understanding the practicalities of how grace justifies you before God is paramount if you're to understand the practicalities of how grace transforms your life from sin into godliness. Sad to say, and I think this is where a lot of confusion comes from, Christians have developed this notion that salvation is a work Jesus did apart from your involvement, which is true. And that the only role you now play is to accept that work by faith, which isn't exactly true. Let me explain. Most mainstream views of salvation end up being relegated to something like this. I prayed the prayer of salvation, accepting the fact that Jesus died on the cross to atone for my sins so that I can receive his imparted righteousness and be declared justified before God. That sounds nice. And while it does, it's, it's no wonder then that people have a hard time determining what follows such a prayer. Since salvation is seen as something you have, something given and received, most wonder at struggle with what do I do next? Which, by the way, easily leads to the, the grace and or grace but gospel distortions. Keep in mind, there is a fundamental reality that makes these legalistic distortions baseless. Every single aspect of salvation, forgiveness, atonement, justification, and righteousness, Every aspect of your salvation occurs, how? It occurs via a relational association with Jesus, a relationship. And it's not a golden ticket that you receive. Salvation, friend, demands an intertwining, a fusing together of your life and Jesus's through faith. It's what Paul's getting to in this passage. Salvation is not some mysterious thing you have or possess the Willy Wonka golden ticket to heaven. Rather, salvation is a relationship you experience. For example, why does God accept Jesus' atonement for your sin? Here's the answer. Because you died with Jesus on the cross. Paul made this point abundantly clear in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He writes, I have been what? crucified with Christ. To this point, Paul will, will add in Romans 6, if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, 
knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Jesus, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. I want you to also consider, how does God declare you righteous and justified before him? The answer? Because you died with Christ, you're now dead, and Christ lives in you. Since atonement occurred when you died with Jesus, a new life yielded, a new life was yielded in and through Jesus' resurrection, the first of the resurrection of the dead. You were resurrected to life, how? In Jesus' resurrection, a relationship. And that means, by the way, most gloriously, that when God looks at you, he no longer sees you, but instead sees Jesus and his righteousness in you. This is the amazing point Paul's articulating when he writes in, in verses 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain resurrection from the dead. When God evaluates your life and mine, the Bible says he sees each of us just as if I'd justified, never sinned. And he sees us this way for one reason and one reason alone. God sees Jesus living in me. He sees Jesus living in you. Paul continues this point in Galatians 2 verse 20. He says, it is no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, admittedly, and I think we can be honest here, this idea of Jesus living in me, that, that does kind of come across pretty weird, doesn't it? For a bit of clarity, let me read Romans 8, verses 9 through 11. Paul writes, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. For if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Understand, when we talk about Jesus living in you, the person of Jesus lives in you through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now here's my point. The essential reality is that every single aspect and process involved in your saving and your sanctifying demands a relational association with Jesus. This is why the Bible uses a similar set of phrases to describe the Christian all over the New Testament. The Bible says that you are in him or in Christ. Positionally, you identify with Jesus. Practically, the Holy Spirit is inside of you. Aside from the fact that you'll find this phraseology used four times in Philippians chapter 3 alone. For a perfect example, look no further than Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life, how? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Friend, salvation is not a voucher program provided by Jesus that you receive in faith but is instead a new reality brought forth through a relational association initiated by Jesus that you then continue by faith. 
your salvation. Again, forgiveness, atonement, justification, and declared righteousness occurs, only occurs, if you're found by God living in Christ Jesus. Let me attempt to illustrate this idea using a little bit of a creative license. Is that all right? That cool? Okay. What if, let's say, I went to the hottest club in Atlanta on the most happening night of the year and tried to get in? When, let's say, the weekend before, I had partied with a group of friends, got hammered, and tried to fight a security guard. I then threw up all over the DJ turntables. You and I both know that following weekend, there's no chance on earth they're going to let me in. I've blown it, fallen short. I'm not going to get in unless, unless, let's say a stretch limo pulls up to the front door and I get out with my close personal friend, my pal, Christopher Bridges, a.k.a. Ludacris, who, by the way, just so happens to own that particular club. As you can imagine, since I'm with Luda, not only am, am I able to avoid the line, but security, even knowing my past transgressions, they're going to let me in without asking any questions. They're going to escort me to the VIP. They're going to give me an unlimited tab. Now, here's the difference in the scenarios. Since in the second scenario, I'm rolling with Ludacris, not only are my past sins immediately forgiven and my slate wiped clean, but it's then his reputation, it's his privilege that's afforded to me as well. If I'm found to be with Luda, when it's all said, I don't have to worry about anything. Everything else takes care of itself. Now keep in mind, this unmerited favor, we call it grace, that I'm presently enjoying, it doesn't have anything to do with me doesn't have anything to do with who I am, nor is there anything that I could have done to earn it. In fact, I clearly don't deserve it. Instead, the favor that I'm enjoying has everything to do with who I have a relational association with, who I have a relationship with. Think about it. And this is what many don't understand about salvation. Having Uber drop me off to the front door of the club, approaching security, and telling them, they have to let me in because I'm with Ludacris when I'm not actually with Ludacris is not going to gain me access. Furthermore, explaining that Luda and I are tight because I, you know, hang around a lot of people who know Ludacris. You know, I give money, am a member of the fan club, Luda Nation. Luda and I, hey man, we're tight. I mean, I faithfully attend his concerts every Sunday morning and Wednesday night. I, I, I happen to know all the words to the album Ludiverse. You see, now, those things will prove to be pointless because they're not evidence of a relationship, right? I can even demand that they call Ludacris. Hey, get, get Luda on the phone. Just tell him Zach Adams is here. If I don't have a relationship with Ludacris, all that's going to be said is I don't know him. This is why the gospel of grace alone, grace period, is so amazing. Grace declares 
that all you need to be forgiven, all you need for your sins to be atoned for, all you need to be justified before God, all you need to be declared righteous, all you need is an active relationship with Jesus Christ. Because salvation is not something you have, but instead someone you know, that very thought of, well, what do I do now after I've said this prayer, all it really does is reveal that you have a fundamental misunderstanding of what salvation is to begin with. Sure, salvation is something you've been given by Jesus that must be received in faith. But what have you actually been given? Think about that. You see, here's the answer. What are you given? You're given a Savior. A Savior. You're saved through God's grace and that you've been given a relationship you don't deserve. A relationship with Jesus that you can enjoy and continue in. What do I do now? Which is the fundamental lie of legalism is replaced with a Savior that I now get to know. And it's with this understanding of the importance of our relationship with Jesus that we come to see why Paul is so adamant we be aware of the intrusions of legalistic thinking. I know that was quite a lead-in, but Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Paul writes, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ, Jesus, has also laid hold of me. <laughs> now let's unpack what Paul is saying here, working backwards. First, what does Paul mean when he mentions that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Initially, it's interesting that Paul affirms it was Jesus who had initially laid hold of him. In the Greek, the word we translate lay hold of, it's rather strong. The idea is to seize or to take possession of. In a modern context, Paul would be referring to what happens when a defensive end breaks through an offensive line, and tackles a quarterback. Understand, Paul is telling us that on the road to Damascus, Jesus personally stepped out of heaven and tackled him. Jesus was not sitting back passively, waiting for Paul to come and lay hold of him. Instead, Jesus, I love this, was the pursuer. Jesus was the initiator. Jesus broke through the offensive line and tackled him. So why would Jesus tackle Paul? I think there are two reasons that really relate to anyone that Jesus lays hold of. First, Jesus was crazy about him, and he's crazy about you. And two, Jesus had a plan for Paul's life, just as he has a plan for ours. What makes this reality and its context just so incredible, especially pertaining to using Paul as an example, is that it really does highlight God's grace. Think about the events leading up to the moment on the road to Damascus. Jesus was crazy about Paul. In what context? He was crazy about Paul when Paul was an enemy. Jesus had a plan for Paul's life, even though he was moving the opposite direction. 
Look how amazing that Jesus literally knows everything about you. And you know what? He's still crazy about you. Like even when you want nothing to do with Jesus, even when you want nothing to do with the life that he wants to provide you, Jesus is still smitten. Like don't miss this point. While Jesus was undoubtedly the initiator of Paul's relationship with him, in this verse, Paul also affirms another key component. Though Jesus initially tackled Paul, Paul still had to make the decision to stop fighting and fully surrender. Well, there is absolutely no question that Jesus initiated the laying hold of because he loved Paul and had a plan for his life it was still necessary for Paul to reciprocate the same action by doing what? Laying hold of that for which Christ Jesus had also laid hold of him. And this leads to another question. What was Jesus' plan for Paul's life or that for which Christ had laid hold of him? Following his conversion, Luke records in Acts 9 verses 15 and 16 that the Lord said of Paul that he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And from a practical sense, we understand that Jesus laid hold of Paul because he wanted to use him to be a vessel to bear witness of his name. And yet, relegating Jesus's plan for Paul's life to simply a list of things he would do, well, that actually misses the, the point entirely. Jesus grabbed hold of Saul of Tarsus, Paul, not because he needed the right man to take the gospel to the Gentiles, as if God's work depends on any man. Jesus grabbed hold of Saul. Why? <laughs> because he wanted to transform him into Paul, who would then bear witness. The work Paul would end up doing, friend, was absolutely secondary to the man Jesus wanted to make him into. Never miss that. Please know, and, and this is another thing that legalism convolutes. Jesus hasn't laid hold of you so that he can now use you to accomplish his plan on this earth. Instead, Jesus lays hold of you because he loves you and he wants to transform who you are. Jesus doesn't save because he has work to be done. Jesus saves because he wants to see broken lives made whole. Dead men brought to life, lame, walking, blind, seeing, those who are lost, found. You see, God's plan for your life are not things for you to then accomplish. His plan is to transform you more and more into the image and likeness of himself. Friend, while God does have ways that he wants to use your life to fulfill his purposes. His ultimate plan is to use this life to transform you more into himself. Christ's likeness, becoming like Christ. Never forget this point. To God, your internal transformation, who you're becoming, supersedes any and all physical accomplishments, things you might do. And it's to this point that Paul is honest with these Philippians that he had not attained or was already perfected. As it pertained to the core reason that Jesus had laid hold of him, Paul admits he had a long way to go. I'm not Christ-like yet. While righteous before God, while justified on the account of Jesus' word, Paul here is affirming from a very practical sense that he was far from being like Jesus. 
Paul could admit, as we should, that there were many areas of his life that needed to become more like Jesus, which then explains why he was pressing on by laying hold of that for which Christ Jesus had laid hold of him. Paul was not pursuing his perfection through his works, but was instead grabbing hold of the Savior who was in the process of changing him. Paul continues by now explaining the particulars of how he's pressing on. Verses 13 and 14, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, in order to avoid confusion, what was Paul pressing towards? Well, in context, it was the very thing Jesus had laid hold of him for. Paul says his ultimate goal was this prize, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, the whole point to Paul's life was pursuing the very purpose for which Jesus had originally laid hold of him. It's what his life was consumed with. And note, as we just discussed, this was not things for Paul to do for Jesus, religious works to be done, sacrifices to be made, accomplishments to be tallied. Instead, the goal was an internal transformation yielded through a prize. What was the prize? A relationship with Jesus. The call of God Paul had received wasn't his works, but in a relationship with Jesus. Notice the key to Paul's pressing onwards and towards Jesus. He writes that he forgot those things which are behind and he was reaching forward to those things which are ahead. The tenses being used here in, in the Greek indicate that this was something constant, something continual. He was constantly and continually forgetting and reaching. One of the interesting aspects of this really famous verse is how incomplete our application of it ends up being. Most refer to the forgetting those things which are behind as the exhortation to let go of the former life of sin with all of its condemnation. Things that get stirred up with their memory. And trust me, I, I get that perspective. It's true, isn't it? That it's hard to walk in victory if you are living in defeat. It's hard to run with endurance if your feet remained shackled. No doubt, it was only in this process of forgetting and reaching forward that Paul was able to then write in Romans 8 that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Or for him to write what he, what he does in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, Paul says, all things have become new. And yet, while this is true and glorious in and of itself, I'm not so sure the former life of sin is what Paul's actually referring to in its context. Don't forget this exhortation to forget those things which are behind comes in the context of a greater discussion concerning legalism and how legalism undercuts, undermines our joy. I'm convinced that there is a greater deterrent to your pursuit of Christ and the transformation that results than a mere guilt over the sin of the past. Like from personal experiences. 
massive failures. I've discovered that anytime you take pride in spiritual victories of the past, or for that matter, take pride in how far you've presently come, how much you've grown, you've in turn set yourself up for a fall. Pride comes before the fall. Well, it's true, and this is good news, that you are not who you once were. It's a great thing, right? It is paramount, friend, that you're continually, daily, pressing on and reaching forward. Never allowing yourself to grow content with who you presently are. Think of it this way. If you aren't like Jesus, you haven't arrived. And that's what makes legalism so dangerous. Legalism fosters pride in what you've accomplished. It places an undue emphasis on what you're presently doing. Grace and do these things, or, or grace but don't do these things, these gospel distortions. They enable you and I to have a sense of pride in the wrong thing our accomplishments, or sacrifices. By looking back at former victories or around at what you're presently doing for God, legalism sneaks in by presenting a a moral structure whereby it's easy to then be lulled into a, a false sense that you're doing great. And yet, if like Paul, your focus is only forward, looking to Jesus with the goal of being Christ-like, how could you ever conclude that you're doing well, especially when you have so far to go. In light of the fact that Paul knew he had not already attained or was already perfected, because he knew there were so many areas of his life that still needed to be transformed by Jesus, Paul is uh, about as honest as he can be with his Philippian friends. He says, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, or, or literally, There's a lot about all of this I'm still learning. But he writes, one thing I do, one thing I know, in my pursuit of laying hold of the very life that Jesus is laying hold of me, becoming the person that Jesus wants me to be, Paul says, I have to determine to make a daily choice to always forget those things which are behind me, whether they be my past sins or, for that matter, my present victories, I have to place my sole focus not on doing things for God or foregoing things, which never really yield the life Jesus wants. But I have to reach forward. I have to press towards the goal, this inward transformation that can only be yielded how? Through the prize of this heavenly calling of God, my relationship with Jesus and Him alone. In closing, Grace and do these things, or grace but don't do these things, these approaches to spiritual development, legalism, not only fail, but as Paul says, God views them as rubbish. Friend, they're dangerous because they will rob you of joy by adding unnecessary expectations and conditions to a relationship with Jesus, a relationship that's only possible how? Through His grace. A relationship dependent upon one work and one work alone. Not yours. His. The one He accomplished on the cross. This morning, whether you're a believer or not, the fact remains the same. Jesus is grabbing hold of you. 
He's busting down the line. He's breaking through the line. He is seizing you because he loves you. Christian or unbeliever alike, Jesus loves you. And he wants to transform who you are. Life transformation is the goal. Making you into something you're not. Making you more like him. Like Paul, Jesus doesn't care what you've done. Nor does he care what you're presently doing. He doesn't care if you're pursuing him or not. Never forget Jesus is the initiator. The question begs, will you reciprocate? Will you grab hold of him? May you rejoice, or for that matter, discover joy and the knowledge, friend, that you're standing before God as well as the process by which you grow in godliness is found in a relationship you have with Jesus and not your performance. Your performance gets you kicked out of the club, but it's a relationship with Jesus that gets you into heaven. May you hear those words, not depart because I don't know you, but well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest. How amazing that you don't have to earn God's favor. Oh, how amazing that is, right? How amazing that you're not required to maintain some standard to keep that favor. There is no condemnation. In grace and through Jesus, friend, please know that you have been set free. You have been liberated to enjoy the favor of God and then allow that favor to change everything. And so, Father, Lord, we ask,